Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge, where we look at geopolitical issues in a historical context with Professor Ali Ansari and me, Suzanne Rain. And today we're joined by Professor Bill Hurst, one of the directors at the Centre. Bill is an expert on everything to do with China and Southeast Asia. And we've got Bill in today to talk about the elections in Taiwan, which took place on the 13th of January. So you might say, why are you talking about that now? Because it's over. And you may remember that we talked a lot about it, or we and everybody talked an awful lot about it before they happened. And we thought that given that we talked about it so much before they happened, maybe it would be a good thing to talk about them after they've happened as well and to examine essentially what the result means. So that's the starting point of why Bill is here. But I think we're then going to go on more generally to talk about what this means for China and its relationships with the West and particularly America. So Bill, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Bill, could you start by explaining for our listeners what the result of the election was and anything else that you think we ought to know about, about essentially where this leaves us? Sure. So the election result on the presidential side in Taiwan. So it used to be that in Taiwan, the presidential election and the legislative election took place at different times. Now they've been taking place for a long time now, actually, at the same time. And what's happened then is a very different result on the presidential side and on the legislative side. And so on the presidential side, the result is very much in line with what we expected in terms of what the polls were saying, which is new. In previous Taiwanese elections, the polls were often off by, by quite a bit or all over the place. This time, the polls were fairly in lockstep and pretty much on the mark. And so as predicted, uh, the Democratic Progressive Party, which had been in power before, nominated their vice president, sitting vice president Lai Tsingde, and he won a plurality but not a majority of the vote. The Kuomintang, or KMT, uh, the main opposition party that had been in power years ago for many years, but has been out of power the last eight, uh, nominated a uh, candidate named Hou Youyi, uh, who was by most estimates not a very strong contender uh, and not the ideal person they could have picked. But he ran a decent campaign and, and finished uh, second. Then we had this sort of upstart populist politician, Koenja, uh, who has founded a new party a couple of years ago called the Taiwan People's Party. And he ran a very successful campaign and came in close behind Ho and split that vote. So in the Taiwan system, unlike, say, France or most other direct electoral systems of presidential, most direct election presidential systems, you don't need a majority. You just need the most votes on election day. So there's no runoff. Uh, if it were in a runoff system, Right. And Ho and uh, Lai would have gone to a runoff and, and whoever got the most votes between the two would win in the second round. Taiwan doesn't do that. So Lai just wins on election day. So he's elected as the new president. It's the first time that the incumbent party has won re-election since the advent of democratic elections uh, for president in 1996. First in these eight times. If you don't count Li Dong Kui, who won in 1996, who was the incumbent, uh, but he hadn't been elected before that. It's the first time that the incumbent party has remained in power with a change of candidates, I should say. And just, Bill, I'm going yep. to interrupt you there, because although he's a changing candidate, he was the vice president under Tsai, 
Sign that's wave. correct. What I was looking to differentiate though is that if if we think about um, Chen Shui-bian, who won in two thousand, he was reelected in two thousand four. Mm. Right, presidents can serve two terms of four years in Taiwan, uh, and so he left office in two thousand eight. At that point, the KMT came back in, right, and Ma Ying-jeou was elected and then reelected in two thousand twelve, and then he left office in twenty sixteen. But at that point, the DPP came back in uh, when Tsai Ing-wen was elected in 2016, and she just served two terms and left office, or is about to leave office. So in that sense, it's the first time the incumbent party has remained on for a third term, is what I was really trying to get at, rather than being been reelected uh, in, in that sense, because individual candidates have been reelected as the incumbent. Uh, in fact, they usually have been. So... It's an interesting change in that respect. It's also important in that there's no majority. And this has happened a couple of times in the past where somebody's been elected without a majority of the vote. It means most likely that Lai will be somewhat weaker in terms of his mandate or electoral backing than his predecessor or even his past couple of predecessors. But what's really interesting to me about the election is what's happened on the legislative side. So Taiwan's legislature is unicameral, the legislative yuan, uh, and has 113 seats. And what's come back in the results is that the KMT has won, I believe, 52 seats. The DPP has won 51. The Taiwan People's Party has won eight, and there are two independents. So no one has a majority. Not only does no one have a majority, the KMT got more votes in the legislative races than did, I'm sorry, the DPP got more votes in the legislative races than the KMT, yet the KMT secured more seats. And just to remind our listeners who might be confused, so the KMT are the opposition party and the DPP are the party of the president. president. Yes. Can I, yeah. Ali? Can I just ask you, as you know, one of the, these listeners who doesn't want to get too confused about the party political makeup in Taiwan, the result you're saying to me sounds like it's clearly not a decisive result. It's not a decisive result for a particular wing or faction or party or whatever. Uh, so why, are the, why have the Chinese government in Beijing been quite so upset at the result? Surely this sort of chaos, I mean, if it is chaos, I mean, obviously not chaos, but surely this sort of lack of a decisive result is, is good for them in a way. Which they've in fact been saying since the election. Oh, they have. Okay. Yes. So, so the the whole thing is sort of a, a dance of symbolism, right? If you want to think of it that way. In that, prior to the election, there was a strong escalation of sharp signals being sent that China would be very displeased if the Democratic Progressive Party were to win again. That they'd strongly prefer a different result, whatever that might be. They weren't happy about the elections taking place at all because, indeed, China doesn't recognize the legitimacy of Taiwan being able to hold elections of this sort at all for a national government, nominally for all of China. And once the election happened, the strategy shifted rather quickly and markedly, and I think wisely, actually, from China's point of view, to being one of saying, well, Lai doesn't have a very strong mandate. His party doesn't have a majority in the legislature, which they had before. They've just lost that, you know, and, and so we can see that the result is split, that most Taiwanese voters don't seem to actually want a move towards more uh, distance from the mainland or independence, which is, you know, China's view on that, obviously. And, um, you know, that essentially the elections were not very successful or not very successful in producing a consolidated government that now can challenge China. 
Bill, can I interrupt again? Because one of the things that kind of slightly gets lost in this melee of acronyms is the fact that although these parties oppose each other and they have the different, their difference with regard to China is not that one party supports reunifying with China and one supports proclaiming independence, but is that they all essentially support, correct me if I'm wrong, some kind of maintenance of the ambiguity of the status quo and the difference of opinion is about how best to achieve that. Is that right? It's more even a difference of interpretation over what the status quo is. Yep. So if we look at Taiwan's constitution and the basis of the political regime in Taiwan since 1945, it is all of China, officially. It is the Republic of China, which existed on the mainland prior to 1949 and continues to exist on Taiwan and is the quote-unquote legitimate government and regime for all of China. Of course, the government in Beijing has the same claim. Right. So the Chinese civil war in that sense never fully ended, at least on paper. And we have these two different governments in control of different parts of the country, both claiming to control the whole country or right to control the whole country. That's, you know, sort of where things are de jure, but de facto, of course, that hasn't been the case at all for a long, long time. And in fact, what we see in Taiwan then is a general consensus or move towards the middle in public attitudes and political attitudes in that if we go back 30 years or 40 years, there was a strong faction of people who really wanted to declare formal independence, who wanted to proclaim a Republic of Taiwan, wanted to say we're no longer in any way part of China, linked to China, have any relationship there. Then there was also a sizable faction that really wanted to preserve this goal of reunification with the mainland, ideally through the conquest of the mainland by the nationalist forces from Taiwan that had been the stated goal since they went there in 1949. And so these two factions or areas or segments of, of public opinion and, and political opinion have really weakened over the last 30 years. So very, very, very few people, vanishingly small, Less than one or two percent of people, when polled, say that they have any inclination or desire to reunify uh, with the mainland ever. And a declining portion of people would support any move towards formal independence. And instead, there's a sort of consensus that, well, we can't do either of those things. We need something, you know, closer to the status quo. Now, the question is, what's the status quo and how should that be managed? Now, the Democratic Progressive Party says very clearly that they interpret the status quo as being a kind of sovereignty in reality, that in fact, the status quo affords Taiwan a, a kind of sovereignty on the basis of being a state. And so it's not independence per se, but it is basically independence in all but name. And that on that basis, they can proceed uh, with uh, a you know, sovereign foreign policy and sovereign state-to-state relationship with China. The KMT is a little bit more complicated because different factions within the KMT have different interpretations of what the status quo really should be or is. There are more conservative, quote-unquote, views that say, you know, we really need to preserve this idea that Taiwan and China are one country with one government. And then there are others who are much closer even to the DPP position 
a big difference, I think, in terms of implementation when it comes to the cross-strait issue. To say nothing of differences between the parties and other issues like pensions and healthcare and and things like this, the environmental protection, where there are differences. Um, Same-sex marriage was a major division between the parties actually in in the recent past. But in terms of the cross-strait issue, the big division is that by and large, the KMT supports more dialogue with China, more links in terms of economic, social, cultural, and political exchange. They would support more people traveling and residing on each side of the strait from the other side. So Taiwanese people going to the mainland, mainlanders coming to Taiwan uh, in, in different ways, not necessarily coming to live, but possibly. Whereas the DPP generally supports fewer links or is more wary of, of links with mainland China. Um, that it would be, uh, in their view, better to have less interaction with China and more interaction with other places. Um, so a signature policy of Tsai Ing-wen, who's about to leave office, was the so-called Look South policy, uh, which was a, a strong attempt to invigorate Taiwan's relationships in Southeast Asia. Similarly, Taiwan has been working very hard to invigorate its relationships with Japan, South Korea, the United States, and Europe. So that gets to the heart of the question, really, which is where China sees this going. So I noticed that China's Taiwan Affairs Office responded to the results of the election, commenting that the general trend that the motherland will eventually and inevitably be reunified. And that, of course, that's different to what you've just said, which is that support for reunification, i.e. China absorbing Taiwan, is minimal. But this is kind of despite a huge amount of, well, what we're told has been a huge amount of Chinese efforts to influence the elections through misinformation, through all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of different kinds of cyber attacks on Taiwan. So to what extent was that an issue? And is this result, which is actually not unhelpful for everybody because it basically shows a balancing of views across Taiwan rather than an extreme on either side. Does this help China in any way? That's my question, I think. Sure. Um, That's hard to say. I mean, just thinking in terms of Taiwan politics itself, I mean, what the result means is that we have a fairly weak president coming into office uh, who's going to have to deal with the divided legislature. And so the reason I was trying to say the legislative elections are really the more interesting result is that lots of people can claim some mandate in the legislature, but no one can actually form a coalition easily uh, to govern. And so whoever decides to, to push for anything is going to have a very difficult time. I can't imagine the legislature getting much done. We'll see what happens. A major role is going to be played by this Taiwan People's Party and Koenja and his supporters, being that they can sort of hold the swing faction between the other two parties in the legislature. But what that means is that the Taiwan government is going to be hamstrung to a large extent in many, many areas, whatever it wants to do, basically, uh, will we'll have difficulty uh, or at least have to play some kind of very complicated games in the legislature. So in that sense, if China's interested in seeing Taiwan flounder. Uh, This may help bring that about in some ways. It may not, we don't know. In terms of China's agenda for how to manage the cross-strait situation, the baseline agenda has always been that unification is what China wants, and unification will have to happen eventually. 
And anything that moves away from that is bad. Moving towards that faster or slower can be negotiated. Mm. And different leadership in the mainland has had different views on whether they would like to push for something faster or whether they're happy to wait for something slower. I think the formulation they always like to point to, though, is the so-called 1992 consensus, which many in Taiwan claim never existed and certainly is no longer valid now. But the the mainland always points to the, the 92 consensus, which said, supposedly, that the two sides could agree that there was one China, but different interpretations. And so, you know, working from that idea, uh, the principle that the mainland holds is that Taiwan and the mainland should figure out how to eventually work towards harmonizing their interpretation so that they can actually realize the goal of having one China. I mean, presumably, uh, Bill, that, that sort of vision died after the Taiwanese saw what happened in Hong Kong. Long before that, actually, I would Long say. Before. In terms of the Taiwan side, um, as early as 1995-96, many politicians in Taiwan, including the president, who had been the president in 1992, were claiming that there was no such thing as the 1992 consensus. It never existed. We never signed up to that. And that's not how we're going to do this. But, you know, the, the mainland still to this day clings to that. So, you know, more than 30 years later, they won't let that go because it is a really useful way of conceptualizing the issue from their point of view. The question is, to what degree would China tolerate things that look like moves away from unification or toward further separation. And that's the signal they're trying to send, I think, when it comes to that specific aspect of Taiwan politics, is they're trying to send a signal not to go further away. Don't move further away. Anything else other than that, you know, we're going to find some way of sort of uh, finessing it or spinning it, which is what they're doing now. But, you know, the Taiwan side then is trying to figure out internally in Taiwan politics what's the best way to finesse this? Mm. If we're not going to declare formal independence, no one wants unification. Some people want more links. Some people want fewer links. Some would like to move a little bit further away from China. How do you do this in a way that's not going to either you know, lead towards an ever closer embrace from China or uh, conflict with China? So that's the really interesting subtlety about this as seen from the Taiwanese perspective. And it's a subtlety that doesn't come across so much when everyone's analyzing this in the context of America's competition with China, mm. because, because they see essentially, they portray China as just being you know, out there to gobble up everything and Taiwan as being something in its path. And I think what you've always said is it's a little bit more complicated than that, which is what Ali and I always end up concluding on these things. But I think it's really interesting because what you're saying is that I don't think any of those parties, Bill, actually believe that China's going to invade, do they? Well, it would depend. I think that, that I mean, if, if we're talking about China, China wants to send the signal, uh, certainly that uh, military action remains on the table and is never off the table. Uh, that's the signal that it's trying to to send, I think, very strongly before the election and even now. Okay. But at the same time, I think China is also fairly clear in its signaling, but also in its statements that it's not looking for war. 
And it's not looking for war or for violence over the Taiwan issue. The strong preference would be a nonviolent solution, but it's not confident that Taiwan's going to, uh, you know, facilitate that, at least for, in terms of what the mainland would prefer. If we think about, you know, this whole complex issue inside Taiwan of how people are looking at the mainland, I don't think very many people think that the risk of invasion is imminent, but if it were to happen, it's, you know, essentially the end of the world from, from their point of view. And, and maybe, you know, more broadly, this would be a, a global conflagration potentially. So it's the sort of thing that, yes, it could happen. Hopefully the likelihood is very, very low, but I don't think it's right in the front of people's mind thinking it's going to happen tomorrow. But how do you reduce the risk of that in the best possible way, right? Does reducing the risk of invasion or attack mean more military spending or less? Does it mean closer links and more conciliatory policies with the mainland to diffuse tensions? Or does it mean stepping away further from the mainland and trying to beef up defense relations and protocols with Japan or the United States? That's, you know, some of the difference in the political viewpoints inside Taiwan. I mean, I've understood from people much more knowledgeable than me on this, that the chance of a sort of an invasion is fairly slight. But what is a more serious problem looming on the horizon is a blockade. And that if the Chinese decide to blockade, they could make life very, very difficult for the United States. Oh, there's lots of things even short of a blockade. I mean, I yeah. personally, as an individual, not speaking in any way for China or Taiwan or anyone yeah, yeah. in either of those countries, uh, but I personally don't think the risk of military action from China is high, Right. at least not in terms of an invasion. I think the risk is fairly low. I don't think anyone wants to go there. And I think there's a lot of signaling that can be done well short of that, uh, which indeed has been done. And in terms of blockade, I think the risk is not much higher. Right. Because a full blockade of Taiwan is also incredibly expensive for China to even contemplate doing and would create all kinds of additional risks of accidental escalation, et cetera, et cetera. More likely, in my view, would be if China were to want to take stronger action than just words or signals and really you know, do something that's quite disruptive. If we look at what China did I think it was last summer, if I remember correctly, when uh, Nancy Pelosi visited two summers ago. can't remember which year it was now. Uh, but you know, when that happened just afterwards, the large-scale military exercises that were held just east of Taiwan as well as in the Taiwan Strait and, and around other parts of the island were tremendously disruptive to shipping and commerce. And they were not a blockade. They were not directly targeted at Taiwan in any way, at least not formally, but those are the sorts of things. If those were to happen once a month or twice a month, that's almost tantamount to a blockade in terms of the effect it would have on Taiwan's economy, but it's much cheaper and much less inflammatory for China to undertake that sort of action than to actually attempt a real blockade. So I think that sort of action is much more likely. It's kind of, you know, gray zone plus plus. Right. It's, it's much more even than just, you know, flying a few planes over the line. It's actually, you know, undertaking military exercises such that you're disrupting things in a way that a blockade would without actually launching a full blockade and without declaring an intention to do that. Okay. So what we've said really is that we've got some interesting times ahead of us 
politically in Taiwan because of this sort of divided legislature, the new president. It's also worth giving a call out to the new vice president, who's a lady whose name Bill is going to pronounce. Xiao Xiao Meiqin or Xiao Bi Kim, depending which dialect. Thank you. And she's been twice sanctioned by China and was until recently Taiwan's envoy to the United States. So she, I think, will be an interesting character to watch, unless you disagree, Bill. I agree. She she is quite interesting. I met her a couple of times, actually, uh, in the past. Uh, She's very, very uh, competent, probably more dynamic as a political figure than Lai, the president. Um, She has a very interesting sort of personal background uh, having lived a large part of her life in the United States, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, she went to university in the United States. She, uh, I think, secondary school there as well, and also served as ambassador. But even before that, uh, you know, had long-term experience in the United States uh, be- between that those times. So you know, she has a much more international profile than some Taiwanese politicians. Um, and she also, I would say, is in a different wing of the DPP than many others who've been in power, right? She's closer to the the wing of the party that's uh, sort of further from the median voter, let's say, um, in Taiwan, that's a little bit more uh, radical rather than uh, moderate. So, and by radical, you mean more assertive towards China? Um, yes, but not only. Um, I would also say in, in other areas of, sort of social policy, economic policy as well, you know, if we think of parties as having a, a continuum, and you know, there's there's a reason why, for example, uh, you know, the Labour Party is going with Keir Starmer and not Jeremy Corbyn, right? Because the, there's an attempt to sort of appeal to the median voter. Um, there are different wings in any party, and you know, there are some politicians who are going to be closer to sort of moderate positions on the median voter, and some will be less moderate uh, and a little bit more, I guess, you could say radical, progressive, whatever label you want to apply. And I think that she's more in that camp than is Lai, or Tsai Ing-wen for that matter. Uh, I wouldn't say she's a complete radical uh, by any means, but she's, she's just further from the median voter position. It's less of a moderate and more of a, of a partisan uh, on, on a lot of positions. So in terms of what we should watch for within Taiwan over the next couple of years, and I think what you've said is they will be debating quite strongly amongst themselves some of these critical issues about how to approach China, how to how to maintain that kind of stability. And presumably, for as long as they're doing that, that falls into your category, which says moving towards, you know, for the for the Chinese, you're not making unification less likely. You're just maintaining this sort of ongoing doubt. Is that right? Yeah, no, I, I think I see where you're going. I mean, if, if we think about this, if we think, you know, before COVID, at least a couple of years before COVID, um, I don't remember the exact numbers from, from right before COVID, but at least a couple of years before that, about a million Taiwanese people were living long-term in the mainland. Mm. That's huge. And Taiwan has a population of like 25 million or so, 28 million, something like this, and more than a million of them were living in the mainland long-term. Huge investments were made by Taiwanese manufacturers and, and others in mainland business and actually producing things in mainland China. Foxconn, famously that makes all of these electronics and, and does assembly on these things, is a Taiwanese company that does business almost entirely, until recently, uh, almost entirely in the mainland. Right? It has thousands and thousands and thousands of mainland employees uh, and huge factories there. 
So, you know, there, there are these links, uh, and those links are vitally important for Taiwan as well as for the mainland. And so from China's point of view, the key question I think that, that has to be grappled with is what constitutes that step further away? Right. And where's the threshold after which we start to start getting really concerned about that? And I think there's a fairly good consensus prior to COVID that, you know, it would take a lot to push Taiwan further away. Since then, Taiwan has been pushed further away economically and socially because many people did leave during the COVID years. A lot of Taiwan business has diversified to other countries uh, in very substantial ways and has indeed left even from, from the mainland. The mainland is less dependent on Taiwan investment and Taiwan technology for its industries. There are restrictions now, even under things like the, the CHIPS Act from the United States, on some of the manufacturing that Taiwanese firms were trying to do at large scale in the mainland. So, you know, a lot of that relationship is being disrupted. And I think there's also a general consensus in mainland politics that the DPP is dangerous and it's better not to have a DPP administration in Taiwan. And if there is one, the risk of Taiwan taking that step further away is higher. And even if the risk isn't higher and Taiwan sends all the right signals, it's better not to work with them because we don't want to give them legitimacy or, or uh, electoral strength. And so I think China prefers a non-DPP administration, presumably KMT. And, you know, I think that, that that's reasonable. I think if I were in the Chinese government, I'd probably make the same call that I'd prefer to work with the party that is explicitly in favor of closer links and uh, more conciliation and dialogue. But that doesn't mean the KMT is going to unify or that the DPP is going to definitely step away. It's really just a matter of judgments and perceptions in it. Can I take you a little bit away from Taiwan for the moment and ask you about sort of China's, you know, international role in that sense? And, and in particular, you know, one of the questions that's uh, certainly arisen with me is its whole role in terms of the freedom of navigation and what's going on in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Mm. I've been very struck that. I mean, for one reason or another, the Chinese don't really be playing, you know, they're not on the front foot at all. Um, I think they have said some things. They have sort of urged the Iranians to try and, you know, uh, restrain the Houthis. But they don't seem to be that bothered by the fact that international trade might really suffer from the choking of the Suez Canal. And I'm, I mean, surely this must, I mean, surely this must have an impact on them. And I'm, I'm sort of quite curious why they haven't been a little bit more forceful in their uh, protestations of this? Well, I mean, in terms of economic impact, yes, of course it has an economic impact on China as it does on everyone else uh, to have things like this going on. But, you know, China's no longer as reliant as it had been on trade with Europe. Right? The EU, Eurozone, had been the uh, top trading partner for China for many years. A couple of years ago, ASEAN uh, as a bloc took over that, that position. Uh, China has very, very substantial trade uh, with Japan, with Korea, with the United States, in addition to ASEAN. It doesn't necessarily need the Suez Canal to the same extent the Europeans do. certainly doesn't to the same extent the Europeans do. Mm. Uh, it's got other outlets for trade. Uh, in addition to that, China's invested huge amounts of money, foolishly, most would say, in building these trunk rail lines from China to Europe. And if, you know, seaborne trade were to be seriously disrupted, maybe those rail lines might actually start to turn 
less of a loss and perhaps even a profit. Um, I mean, just, just to be sort of out on a limb about it, it's possible that that could happen. If we think sort of more strategically about why is China not taking a more forceful role in, in terms of the Red Sea issues, it's because there's no way to win it, right? That, that China's baseline sort of strategic position is that the Middle East is very far away and it's a very complicated part of the world in which other great powers have strong vested interests. And so the best that China could hope for in Middle East policy are sort of targets of opportunity. So China is one of the only countries that has friendly relationships with almost every major power in the region, except maybe Turkey, right? And China has very poor relations with Turkey. But other than Turkey, it has pretty positive relations with almost every country in the Middle East. It's in a very advantageous position, therefore, to sort of play opportunistic roles in a positive way when those countries decide they would like to make an agreement or get along, right? So, for example, Iran and Saudi Arabia, China can look very good, at least, by seeming to help broker such an agreement as that. And when things don't go so well, China can benefit from the fact that it's still got good trading and other relationships with both sides in all these different disputes and conflicts. And so I think China's very wary of upsetting that. By taking a stronger position on the situation in the Red Sea, it would be taking sides in what's increasingly looking like a, a wider regional conflict. And taking sides is dangerous because you can't win if you really would prefer to be on both sides. But it's it, it's quite dependent on oil coming out of the Persian Gulf, is that right? Um, yes, uh, it is. But again, it has other sources of oil as well. Right. Um, China had been a, a petroleum exporter, actually, until the 1980s, when its own domestic supplies started to run down and its demand went up. And it became a, a fairly large net importer. I think it's probably the world's largest net importer now of oil, but I'm not sure of that statistic off the top of my head. A lot of it comes via the Persian Gulf, but not all of it. A lot of it comes over land. Russia has been a very, very good supplier of oil, for example, the past couple of years to China. Um, and I think is now one of the top markets for supply of oil to China. Iran also supplies a lot of oil to China, as far as I'm aware. At least it used to. I, I'm not sure if it still does, but it certainly used to. But I suppose what I'm trying to say is if a conflict begins to spread towards the Persian Gulf, then the Chinese might be forced to act. Um... It's not clear to me how they would act. Okay. Aren't they having conversations with the Iranians, which are representing their own interests with the Iranians? I mean, I'm only saying this because there's various articles in Reuters and things like that about, about that dialogue. And it seems to me it's one of those things where China has a number of different options open to it of how it goes about its own diplomatic or self-protection efforts don't they? Yes, absolutely. And, and I would be absolutely stunned if there were not wide-ranging dialogues going on between China and Iran on these, these issues and others. Um, in fact, just to mention our, our uh, previous postdoc in the center, uh, Bill Figueroa, mm -hmm. has actually been quoted in a lot of those uh, reports because he studies exactly China-Iran relations. And he did, in fact, be the better source to get on to ask about exactly how things are uh, are, are going in that specific relationship. But I think, yes, there's a wide range of options there, definitely, in terms of how China deals with Iran. But I think there's also a, a potential mistake that could be made with regard to not just the Houthis and Hezbollah, but all of the other different groups 
uh, around the Middle East who are now increasingly in conflict with Israel and with Western powers in that I don't know that there's someone sitting in Tehran pushing all the buttons and making all the calls and telling them exactly what to do, right? And I think that there's a, a similar fallacy that, you know, if we look back to the Cold War, that a lot of people would assume that, you know, someone in Moscow is pushing all the buttons and, you know, communists all over the world are reacting exactly as, as the person at the control panel is saying. I don't think that that's happening in this situation, although I don't really know much about the Middle East, but my sense is that that's not what's happening. And therefore, it's not easy. It's not as easy as just China telling Iran, make all of these people stop doing this mm. because they actually don't control them in such a, a fine-grained way. One of the other things, which I know you don't want to talk about in any depth, Bill, but I'm going to signal because I think it's really interesting, is the question about the, the law of the sea and China's intervention or not in the legal basis for US and UK action against the Houthis. And and I'm just putting a little flag out there, and I think this is something that we're going to try and discuss more perhaps with some of the guys at the Lauterpach Center in, in Cambridge. But China's main international lawyer in the West, who's based in Germany, has said that the international law does not permit the defense of sea lanes, which is, which is of course, obviously open to debate. But presumably, China's in this difficult position where an argument about Babel Mandab, which says uh, it must be there's free passage in international waters, is complicated for them because of the South China Seas. And the Taiwan Strait. And the Taiwan Strait. Indeed, because there, there are sea lanes that go through the South China Sea, the, South, uh, the Taiwan Strait, etc., in areas that China claims as territorial waters, mm. but that are recognized by most others as being international waters or the territorial waters of other states. Uh, or exclusive economic zone of other states, you know, all these different uh, categorizations. So the reason I don't really wish to discuss this too much is that it gets very, very technical very quickly. Mm. Uh, and I'm not a lawyer about you know, sea law, uh, but essentially China is trying to ensure that it can continue to assert uh, sovereignty over much of the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait without fear of others using legal principle to engage in potentially military action uh, in those areas. And presumably, in reverse, that principle is also in at the back of the minds, possibly, but definitely in the minds of the American strategists who are saying it is really important that we assert defense of sea lanes using the law of the sea because that keeps that precedent there. Um. Maybe. I mean, the, the law of the sea gets, in my view, very, very complicated, very fast. Yes. And a lot of these principles of, you know, sort of private war and freedom of navigation actually go all the way back to Grotius mm -hmm. uh, and his articulation of them in his uh, treatise in, in the case over the Santa Catalina that was uh, seized uh, in the Straits of Johor in the early 1600s. And you know, he wrote this famous treatise, uh, De Jure Pride Commentarius, uh, in which he articulates all of these principles that then get taken up much later as, you know, bases of the law of the sea, but they're also the basis for sort of privateer colonialism in what became known as the Dutch East Indies, right? That, that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the DOC took this up with gusto, as actually did the British East India Company around the same time, but later, actually, about a hundred years later in order to 
justify a very particular brand of colonialism. So, so the, these principles have a complicated legacy, particularly, I would say, in the South China Sea uh, and, and Southeast Asia. Okay, that's a fantastic note to end on. <laughs> so, the, I mean, it is fascinating. And this, again, proves the difficulty because we're looking at geopolitics, but unless you're a, an expert in the law of the sea, you can't actually understand the complexity of this issue, which is why geopolitics connects to every other discipline that's being studied in my strongly held view. So, Bill, thank you for that. We will continue to watch what's happening in Taiwan and in China. We'll get you back to updates regularly. Um, but that's a thank you from me, Ali. And from me. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you.